there's an inherent tension, I guess, between climate control and not having loud background noise. Um, The struggle of podcasting. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Sarah Cliff. Hi, Matt. What happened to Ezra, do you think? Not here. Didn't show up. Didn't show up. Maybe he's taping the Ezra Klein show. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? We have a great show. Yes. With only two people. Frankly, the show is better than ever. Better than Ezra, you might say? Yes. We are bringing out a classic research paper that was tragically not voted for by our live Demanded by our Facebook group that we bring But demanded in the Facebook group. The Facebook group is great, by the way. You should join it. I mean, you shouldn't join it, Sarah, but... I'm already there. People should join it. And then you can give us input on important questions like this. Uh, we're going to talk about some some boring healthcare policy. Yep. As we as do. As we do. <laughs> <laughs> but first, sex scandals in Alabama. Um, Roy Moore, who first we had a story that he was... Um, you know, uh, on the prowl, picking up uh, one 14-year-old girl and maybe dating a couple older teens. Uh, that that was reported in the Washington Post. And then I think not really surprisingly, if you were inclined to view those reports as credible, they turned out to not be like the only stories. Those just happened to be the people who the Washington Post was able to track. That. You know, because to pull the curtain back a little bit, right? So you're doing journalism and it's hard. Um, and also, when you do the hard work, you would like to publish stories on it. So you look into something, you find a few people, their stories seem credible, you look into them, you interview some other friends and associates, and then you have, like, enough to make a good story out of. So you run it. And nobody who ever reads any of these stories where it's, like, three women say, and then there's a bunch of supporting material, that that's, like, an exhaustive report on it, like, three... It's enough to be a big news story, so you go run with it. And then that's why more people wind up coming out late. You see this repeated pattern in a lot of the stories about sexual abuse over the past few months. Right. I mean, exactly. It's the the first publication is published because there's enough good material to make a good story out of. Not because there's an exhaustive list. Right. Nobody's saying, well, we spoke to just like every person in the state of Alabama, and these are the only three who who came forward. At any rate, more come out, including um, this woman with the yearbook. Uh, which I guess is the most sort of telling on an evidentiary basis. Um, I have not heard of a grown man signing a teenage girl's high school yearbook really ever, um, I, even in a predatory case. Maybe a teacher. I think that's the only context. That that would make sense, yes. Um, even so, you would hope to not see a romantic note from a teacher. Yes. And then there's this story in the in the New Yorker suggesting uh, that possibly, um, at least what people say in the town of Gadsden, Alabama, is that Roy Moore in the 80s was banned from the mall for being uh, too much of a creeper. So it comes at an interesting moment, too, when we've been watching this kind of series of powerful men falling after similar accusations. But it feels like there's almost a bifurcation with politics that's happening. So we've seen with Harvey Weinstein losing a lot of his power in Hollywood after the accusations came out. We've seen a number of male journalists, a top editor at NPR, uh, Mark Halperin, the political reporter, facing similar accusations and being pretty quickly taken out of their, their roles. The NPR editor stepped down. Mark Halperin lost his book deal, is no longer with MSNBC. It seemed... Like a moment when these claims mattered, that they really were changing the trajectory of these careers. And I think that was having a snowball effect. It made it seem like women could say something, that they could speak out, and it would matter. They would not just be dragged through the dirt. They would actually have a voice. They would change things. They would show that this was unacceptable. What we're seeing with Roy Moore is is not nearly as clear of a narrative. It feels more similar to me to the Donald Trump grabber by the pussy tape, where you kind of saw Republicans coming out against it. But at the end of the day, they kind of stomached it and decided, well, it's better to have 
a Republican president who grabs women by the genitals than have Hillary Clinton in office, that there was a backing, that it was okay to move forward into the presidency with this. And it seems like a pretty, I, I mean, we're still a few weeks out from the election, but you're seeing a lot of these very, very non-committal, if true, statements from Republican senators. Well, he should step down, if true, begging the question of like, what are they waiting for? Like, what is the thing they would need? They have these women making these accusations. And you do have, you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He said yesterday, I believe the women, I think he should step aside. But that doesn't seem to be the the majority opinion among the Republican Senate caucus. And it, it, it seems less of a clear fall than we've seen with a lot of powerful men in the media and entertainment business that when you go over to politics, the trajectory looks different. Yes. Although I would draw this distinction, I think, a little bit differently. I mean, one thing that I think is telling about some of this if true stuff is that, you know, the Senate is not a source of clairvoyance, um, but the United States Congress actually has considerable investigative authority, which it on times uses on matters that it considers to be of significant importance. And if you were sitting there, right, in in the formal statement of John Cornyn, right, he is positing a sharply divergent metaphysical universe in which if this is true, Roy Moore is radically unfit for office. But if it is false, then Roy Moore is the candidate who he's endorsing in the race, right? This is not how, like, I see it. Like, Roy Moore said it would be inappropriate to seat a Muslim congressman. Um, Roy Moore has a long track record. He is best known for defying valid federal court orders. Uh, Roy Moore uh, has all kinds of bigoted opinions about LGBT individuals. Uh, Roy Moore has an insane tax plan. Like, I, I don't find Roy Moore to be an appealing political figure on, on any level. And I think particularly the defying of court orders makes him obviously unfit for, you know, you have to swear an oath to the Constitution to serve in Congress. Uh, Roy Moore flagrantly defies that. But John Cornyn is positing that, like, really, his whole attitude to this race hinges on the truth or falsity of these accusations. But he's not saying, so we should let these women come testify under oath, repeat their story in a circumstance with legal consequences, and then we should bring Roy Moore in, not on Sean Hannity's radio show, but, like, in sworn congressional testimony to, like, explain himself. Like, why are you signing teen girls' yearbooks? What's up with the Gadsden Mall? Like, you you might not get a definitive answer out of that, but that's what Congress does when they, like, want to get to the bottom of something. What Republican senators are doing with these if-true statements is expressing their lack of desire to get to the bottom of it, right? Like, they are saying, I want to take refuge in unknowability, Right, that like I am no longer campaigning with Roy Moore because he's become an embarrassment. But also, if he wins, I'm going to say, "Well, we don't know. The voters spoke. You know, let's let's seat him." I will say to give them their due. I, one thing about this is that in both the case of Trump and the accusations against him, and in the case of Moore and the accusations against him, it comes in a time when the parties have already selected their nominees. So you're giving people this high pressure, like it's Roy Moore or it's Doug Jones kind of choice, right? Which is a tough choice for someone who's sincerely committed to Republican Party politics. I would like to see an example, you know, for like epistemic purposes of like, say these stories had come out before the runoff against Luther Strange, right? Moore beat Strange quite badly in that primary. But would this have tipped it in that case, right? In a case where you were just asking both Republican politicians who mostly backed Strange, but also just grassroots Alabama conservatives who mostly backed Moore, and you're saying, look, like, do we think this is a serious problem? Do we think that this is that this is credible? Would Trump have won the Republican primary, if that Access Hollywood tape had come out a year earlier, and then the women who, in the wake of that tape, came forward, if, you know, if they had all come out in fall of 2015, all of that material, would that have been enough 
for Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz to become the nominee is different, I think, from like in a high pressure partisanship. Right. And case. I mean, like, that's a different dividing line from the media where like one editor falls out of power. There's it's not like, you know, it's your choice, like this editor or nobody or this editor or like a completely like someone who's going to take the news organization in a different direction. Wait, if there's was, like a lot less high stakes involved. Wait, in wait, it wasn't like it's either Harvey Weinstein keeps his job or else it will never be an independent film again. Right, exactly. But I don't, I mean, you could, I guess that is part of it. Well, one of the things that's, I mean, in the Trump case and the Moore case that that makes it even like more confusing is that this was never the person that establishment Republicans wanted. Right. You know, the establishment Republicans were behind Luther Strange. They were not behind Donald Trump. Um, that, you know, all the stuff that Matt listed earlier, like that does not endear someone like more to Mitch McConnell. I, I think, you know, him getting, if he is elected, who who knows like what role he plays in the Republican Party. I don't really expect him to be kind of like a rank and file, just like doing what leadership says to do. It's not like it's this bright, sunny future where all the Republican senators get along if more comes into office. So I think that is one of the things that it is true. You know, the choice at this point is between him and Doug Moore. But at the same time, like this wasn't the guy that establishment Republicans wanted in the first place. But now that he is the nominee, they're not, um, you know, willing to fully write him off. And you you could see action. I mean, you could see saying, OK, like we're throwing our weight behind a write-in campaign for Luther Strain. Yes. Would it work? I don't know. I mean— it's now Al- it's Alabama. It's a conservative state. It might have a shot against a Democratic challenger, but you, 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 I think it's a false dichotomy to say, well, it's like Jones or more. Right. That you know, you do have someone there. You could mobilize behind them. You have about like at least a few weeks left to do that. I think it kind of is a bit of a cop out to say, well, more is the and you've seen this from some local politicians. I think saying, well, you know. If it's like more or a Democrat, like I go with more, it's not so bad. Mentioning some things about the Bible, how how Mary was a teenager that um, are not the most compelling explanations for this. But I feel like that's a bit of a false choice. There are there are other things you could do if you wanted to say, like, this behavior is unacceptable in our legislators. The other thing that is different here, right, is when you look at these cases, particularly in the, the media cases— I think a key thing is that people who care have some power in the industry, you know, that you didn't didn't mention on, on the list, but but Lockhart Steele, who was an executive at, at Vox Media, he, he got fired after some some stories came to light about him. And I think the reason that happened was that it wouldn't have stood to not do that. You know, like there's a lot of women working here, men too, like there would have been a revolt. I mean, I, I think the executives, you know, they they wanted to do the right thing, but also they sort of, they had to do the right thing, mm-hmm. right? There are not a lot of women in the Republican Congressional Caucus. There are almost no women in the sort of like big dollar donor universe. And you're not asking people to sort of like work personally with the United States senator Right. Like people who are involved in the larger conservative universe, you know, you're in the NRA and you're like supporting Moore's election. You're still not going to like work in the same office with him if if he wins something like that. And you saw this again with, with Donald Trump. Right. That just like on a ground level way, like people are happy to put up with it. And so there's a there's a circling of the wagons, whereas Uh, You know, we've seen these sort of Hollywood stories, these journalism world stories, you know, when things come out, when they're credible, you don't need to meet a like, we could prosecute this case in a court when it reaches the standard of like most people are persuaded that this is true. It becomes like toxic and and unworkable, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, which I think is good. And it speaks to a poor, I, I just think, dynamic in Republican Party politics, that there is not just on a strategic level, but like on an interpersonal level, a lot of willingness to put up with with bad actors. Um, I think there's been some whispers. We haven't yet like really seen the harassment accusations bug pass around Capitol Hill. Um, that day, that day will come. But I think, you know, I think we'll see a difference there. Mm-hmm. Should we take a 
break, break and come back to this? Absolutely. The other day, I, I was trying to leave the house. I, I couldn't find my keys. I couldn't find my wallet. Uh, lucky for me, I had a tracker on my keys. I did not have one on my wallet, uh, but it found me my keys, and my wallet was right next to my keys, so I was safe. Uh, so this is the solution to the sort of daily scavenger hunt in life is the tracker. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device, and now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. Uh, with the Tracker Pixel, you never worry about things again because Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. Uh, you stick the Pixel on whatever it is you tend to lose, uh, your keys, uh, your wallet, your purse, some of your toddlers, little doodads that you need, uh, whatever it is. It's small enough to fit anywhere. And when you misplace an item that has a Tracker Pixel attached, use your smartphone, and a 90-decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It's even got a powerful LED light so you can find it in the dark. Uh, and a really cool feature is if the thing that you've lost is your phone, uh, then you can just press the button on a tracker pixel and it makes your phone ring. And it makes your phone ring even if your phone is on silent mode. Uh, and, you know, and it, it's safe because you won't trigger it accidentally. So you can find your phone, you know, under the couch, wherever it may be. It's really cool. And you can even locate your item if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. Uh, they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee that means you truly have nothing to lose. Okay. Tracker makes a great gift. Uh, during this holiday season, you can save 20% off your order when you go to thetrackr.com slash weeds. That's thetrackr.com slash weeds for 20% off. thetrackr.com slash weeds. So I want to think through, like, what happens if he is elected? Because that seems like an actual possibility right now when we're taping this. I mean, who knows what happens later today. Very strong but possibility. It seems like a strong possibility that these accusations will, will pass. The if true, like, you know, I think like you were saying, Matt, like it feels like it kind of like lets Republicans live in the suspended reality where you kind of just wait for people to stop caring about it and then it kind of brushes aside. So you have different ideas floating around. You have, um, I believe it was Cory Gardner who was saying that he should not be seated if he does win the election you could expel a senator, which my understanding is that hasn't happened since about Civil War era Congress. So that would be quite unprecedented. But I kind of put my money on, you know, if Roy Moore is elected, that I don't think he's going anywhere. Um, I don't see Republicans, once you get that person into office, saying, especially with how tight their margin is right now, and I think that speaks to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, that this is a position where where it does shape what the future of legislating looks like. And I think people are, allowed, are willing to set a lot aside. Republicans are willing to set a lot aside to have one more vote in the Senate where they currently hold 52 votes. If they would lose this kind of really easy Republican seat in Alabama, that would put them down to 51. So there is the option. And I think it becomes a lot more stark if Roy Moore wins. The option really falls to Republican senators what do they want to do? What do they do? They want to seat this person. Do they want to seat him and expel him from Congress? That's where it goes. You know, this isn't just about voters. It's like, what do Republican senators think is appropriate for a member of their chamber? And here's where the fact that Moore was never the establishment's mm -hmm. choice in a weird way works in his favor. Because if you had a guy who was in there because he was the party's choice— once the party decided that he was an embarrassment, they could throw him overboard and sort of effectively nudge him out. And in that case, right, because I think what Republicans would like to see happen here is more beats Jones and then more voluntarily steps aside under a cloud of scandal, at which point Kay Ivey just appoints a new interim senator to, to fill the job, the attorney general, the insurance commissioner. One That's, of like, so implausible, though. Why would he step aside? I, I, like, right. if you get through the election, that's such, like, a weird, like, thing to hope for. Well, and in particular, if you already—because here's the thing, because he already beat the establishment in a primary— as with the backing of Steve Bannon and Breitbart and things like that. So now in the eyes, I mean, if you think about this through the situation of a Roy Moore fan, right, of somebody who voted for him twice to be chief justice of Alabama, who watched him twice be removed 
by from office for defying court orders. Now, again, a normal person sees a guy who keeps getting booted from office because he's defying court orders and thinks, I'm never voting for this guy again. But there are people in Alabama who they voted for him once. He was thrown out for defying court orders. They voted for him again. He was thrown out again. Then they voted for him a third time for the Senate nomination. Now they're going to vote for him again in a general election in the face of these, these sexual assault charges. And in that worldview, right, like Roy Moore well, can I just say, this is, is your a significant number. Yeah. So from our from our absent co-host, Ezra, he wrote a piece about a poll that came out a few days ago um, that asked people in Alabama, given the allegations that have come out against Roy Moore's alleged, alleged sexual misconduct against four underage women, are you more or less likely to support him as a result of these allegations? 29% say more likely. Right. Like that's— that's a, that's a significant number. Right. And it, and I think it's because even before these allegations came out, the only worldview in which it made any sense to be backing Roy Moore is a worldview in which Roy Moore is this incredibly noble champion for the true Christian values of true Alabama people. And there is a massive conspiracy, right, that involves like the entire federal judiciary and the entire Republican Party, as well as Democrats and everyone else who are out to get him. So this like ratcheting up of the stakes and stuff like it doesn't it, it just shows how dangerous Roy Moore is and how people are going to stop at nothing to, to bring Roy Moore down. Right. I mean, that's like the the dynamics of this. Like if you ever talk to people, you know, old timers in, in D.C. about the sort of unflagging support for Marion Barry. Right. It's it, it's the exact same dynamic where once you get into the mindset that somebody is like the people's champion who's being persecuted by the powers that be new charges against the people's champion are like not impressive. That just goes to show how deep and far reaching the, the conspiracy is. Right. Right, and, and you've seen like that exact spin from Bannon about the Roy Moore allegations that this is just the. Bezos, Washington Post and the Democrats and how convenient these women came forward a few weeks before the election, even though they didn't come forward, they were pursued by Washington Post reporters. And, you know, that's why I think it, it again, we've, we've talked about the Senate and its role with Trump about, you know, whether they are going to stand up to Trump, you know, ask for more investigations about Russian meddling in the election you know, if they're going to, even back during the campaign, if they were going to, like, stand up against him when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And generally, we've seen, no, that, you know, even though he's not their choice, that they have not been willing to take those steps. So you could see the Senate acting as kind of the final check, as saying, you know, Roy Moore was never our guy, we think, because— I don't know. It ends up like great for them if he get if he gets seated. Given like everything we've seen so far, I, I don't know. It ends up they they do get a slightly stronger majority in Congress, but who who knows what happens next if he is seated and like what that means for him? The Senate could be like that final check on this sort of behavior, but I, I don't really see the current Republican Senate we have now like making the decision to do that, even though we do have some rumblings from Cory Gardner, from Mitch McConnell, that they would like to do that. I don't know. It's hard to see that actual follow through. But here's another thing. Say this Roy Moore story had never come out. A soon to come plot to the United States Senate would likely be Republican senators trying to insist that Bob Menendez should be expelled from the Senate, right? Talked about this with with Andrew on on the last episode. This is not like a serious effort to get Bob Menendez expelled from the United States Senate because everyone knows he won't be. But they they have this plan to make vulnerable Democrats take tough votes against expelling Bob Menendez, right? And Democrats are not going to do it. So that's like the uh, pre-Roy Moore story. Now, if Roy Moore wins the election, right, this is going to become what you always need in these situations is a psychological deflection mechanism. And Republicans will say, sure, Democrats, we could expel Roy Moore, but what about Bob Menendez, right? And then they're going to be proposing a trade in which Republicans ditch a Republican senator who they never wanted in favor of a more reliable Republican senator, but Democrats ditch a Democratic senator in favor of a Republican appointed by lame duck Chris Christie. So, of course, Democrats will reject that deal. And then Republicans will get to say, right, because this is all anybody ever wants in a partisan controversy is like an out, 
right? And then you can say to strong Roy Moore critics, look, we had this good proposal. Like, let's get rid of all the senators who there's bad accusations against. But those partisan Democrats, they wouldn't go along with it. So th- that's what I think. I-, I think this is all a fantasy. Like, Roy Moore is going to be a United States senator, not just for four years, but probably for decades, right? But there's a decent chance that Doug Jones will be a United States senator, probably only for four years, but, you know, maybe for more time than that. And Republicans would maybe like to convince themselves that they have some alternative here, just like they did before. There were all these senators with, with Trump who, like, they didn't endorse Trump say, maybe. Or they said, well, I'm not going to campaign with Trump. But what they didn't say is that if you think Donald Trump would be a good president, you should vote for Donald Trump. If you don't, you should vote for his opponent, right? Jeff Flake, who is now on tilt in an amazing way, he said, look, if the choice is between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, I would vote for Doug Jones. And then, like all the other Republicans, he's like, I I want to find a way for there to not be a choice. But he said, if that's the choice, that's where I come down. Nobody else has said that. Mm -hmm. And in the end of the day, they're going to get Roy Moore. You know, like, they're going to convince themselves that there's some third alternative. But, like, there isn't really. You know, if you win a primary and then you win a general election, like, you're a United States senator. There's no no getting rid of you through, through the back end. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that frustrates me the most out of this is like, what incentive? Because you were saying, you know, we haven't really seen the sexual abuse harassment wave go through Congress yet. If you're a woman who's had a bad experience, like, what incentive is there after like watching this Roy Moore thing unfold to ever try and do anything? I think if you're a woman in media right now, there's lots of incentive. You can see that these accusations have an actual effect. But these women who have come out against Roy Moore have just been, you know, questioned and told their stories are false. They've had Roy Moore deny it. I could see one of the one of the long-term outcomes of this is that you have Roy Moore as a senator for decades. But another long-term outcome that might be a bit more powerful is it really says to women who work on the Hill, women who have had bad interactions with people who are currently in power, like, why bother coming forward? Like, what change are you possibly going to affect? You know, you'll just have your name out there and this person will be elected. And what was the point? And now this is the top thing when someone Googles you when you're trying to get a new job. Like, this is the thing that they're going to appoint. I think one of the possible lasting effects of this is it really pulls back on a lot of the momentum that felt like it was developing out of the Weinstein scandal and says, you know, not so fast. You, you you can reach some places, but you can't reach Congress right now. Although to that end, I will note, I, Roy Moore is polling cataclysmically poorly for a Republican in Alabama. You know, I mean, he... So if he loses, like, I take back right. a lot of what I said, but, I but mean, if he wins, I think But even a- if, like, if Moore wins by two, like, I think that will be a disaster for America. But, like, still a sign that he was grievously wounded by these kinds of allegations, and that if you brought them against almost any other senator who does not have as, you know, highly partisan a constituency, it would kill them. I mean, look, it's going to be a devastating blow. But also, I would frankly say that, like, there is a partisan difference here. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I think that it's hard to know for sure, but, like, I think that liberal groups would seriously abandon a Democratic senator who was accused of this kind of serious misconduct in a way that conservative groups don't. That, like, there is just a... It's not a coincidence, right, that, like, a few years ago, when there was just, like, a square legislative question, right, around the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, right? And there was a question. It's like, should we make it easier in the judicial system for women who've been discriminated against on the jobs to get recompense, or should we make it harder? And, like... Almost every Democrat in Congress said, well, we should make it easier. And almost every Republican in Congress said, well, we should make it harder, right? Like, there's a substantive disagreement in the United States about, like, whether discrimination against women is a significant social problem that should be redressed through legal means. And Democrats say yes, and Republicans say no. I'm not going to say Republicans favor the kind of mistreatment of women that Roy Moore has been accused of, but they don't think anything should be done about it exactly. And that that's reflective in 
you know, just like in, in votes they take in judicial rulings, their appointees bake, and, and I think in their treatment of individual cases as well. All right, is it time for boring health Speaking policy? Speaking of policy. All right, we'll take, take a, a break. break. And then bore you. I like learning things. I bet you like learning things, too, if you listen to The Weeds. And that's why I continue to enjoy The Great Courses Plus. They give you unlimited access to some of the world's best professors about a ton of different topics. I want you to discover it, too. So they're offering our listeners a full free month to enjoy all of their courses. But you have to go to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Uh, you can explore topics in languages, science, history, wine appreciation, uh, how to improve your chess game. Frankly, my chess game could use some improvement. I I may check that one out next. Uh, And The Great Courses Plus is over 8,500 video lectures that you can watch. And now you can stream the audio too with The Great Courses Plus app, uh, which I think is going to be a popular feature with podcast listeners. Uh, Check out Economic History of the World. It's great insights into the sort of the pivotal shifts in the global economy that shaped world history. Uh, So our listeners get the first full month for free. You just sign up through our special URL to start watching thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Get your free month. You're going to love it. Sign up today, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. This is actually a super exciting week in boring health policy. It is. It's the most <laughs> exciting week in boring health policy we've had um, since, since Obamacare repeal failed. So we found out yesterday on on Monday that um, Alex Azair is Trump's nominee to run Health and Human Services after Tom Price stepped down amid his private plane scandal. Um, Azair is a former Bush administration, HHS official. He is someone who seems to be generally pretty well respected by career staff there. They kind of say, like, he knows the department. He knows how it runs. Um, He has gotten very quickly from, you know, liberal groups has been denounced for his work since HHS as a drug executive at Eli Lilly. But one of the statements I found pretty notable was from Andy Slavitt, who used to run the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services under Obama, who um, has been a very outspoken advocate for the Affordable Care Act. He said, you know, I, I hope he can be a good HHS secretary. He didn't say, I think he will be. But it was not this knee-jerk, this person is going to be, you know, a disaster for healthcare in America. But the thing I want to put this into context is um, kind of what it shows about what Mike Pence is like very quietly up to in the Trump administration. He very quietly but deliberately is really staffing health and human services with a lot of people from back in Indiana who are, are his allies, who have the same views that he does on how healthcare should look. And you're really starting to see that um, issue come to fruition. Um, Alex Azair lives in Indiana right now. He is someone who's in that health policy circle. Um, you know, he's been working for Eli out there for a little while. You also have Eli Lilly is headquartered, is headquartered in Indiana. Indiana. So it's relevant yes, context. It's relevant context for why he is out in Indiana, not working remotely for some other headquarters. And you really see this vision that Pence has for healthcare coming to fruition, I feel like, over the past week. So you have Alex Azair coming in as HHS secretary. You also have a speech that Medicare administrator Seema Verma gave last week where she talked about, um, quote, the hollow victory of enrolling people in Medicaid. Basically, she it was a very odd audience she went to. She went to the Medicaid director's conference and she talked about how it wasn't really a victory to sign a lot of people up for Medicaid, which um, maybe when you're talking to people who signed people up for Medicaid wasn't your choice audience and talking about the soft bigotry of enrolling people in these benefits without work requirements, without asking them to do something that it, you know, was not in these enrollees' best interests. So I think between the Azair nomination, between Verma kind of coming out and hinting that work requirements are probably coming to Medicaid pretty soon, we're starting to see the HHS vision take shape. And I don't think when Donald Trump made the announcement on Twitter yesterday, he talked about how Azera is going to come in. He's going to work to reduce drug prices. I don't think that is what the future looks like. Trump has hinted a number of times that he wants to take on drug prices. It's the biggest concern in most healthcare polls. Like people are most concerned about the cost of their pharmaceuticals, but we've seen absolutely no indication that that is the policy direction they want to go. Instead, I think it's more of, I would see Azair coming in and kind of following in the footsteps of what 
Seema Verma has been doing and really looking at how they can change healthcare programs to the vision that Pence has had, one where people on Medicaid pay premiums, they have to have a work requirement. So that's where I see the action being more than drug pricing, even though he is someone who comes from the pharmaceutical world. I would add that uh, President Trump, uh, Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and uh, National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn and House Speaker Paul Ryan have all said within the past month that after tax reform, they want to do welfare reform. And this has been greeted with a lot of head-scratching in Washington because Welfare reform in the 90s was understood to mean programmatic changes to aid to families with dependent children, now temporary assistance for needy families, a program, a means-tested cash income support program for for low-income people. Uh, So when Trump starts to say things that don't appear to make sense, people just assume he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, But I think it's clear that what they are saying is right now the United States has a mid-sized budget deficit. Not it's not a huge problem, but it's but it's not nothing. The the US budget deficit is also growing. It's bigger this year than it was last year. And that's a bit of an issue only because the economy is improving, right? I mean, normally you want to see a deficit that's sort of on a shrinking trajectory when the economy gets better, uh, but we're seeing a growing deficit as the economy gets better. And we are about to have Republicans pass a large tax cut that will both make the deficit bigger in the short term and will increase the deficit trajectory in, in the longer run. So the question then is like, well, what are Republicans going to do about that bigger budget deficit, right? And one possibility is they'll let the Fed raise interest rates, uh, which will slow business investment, blah, blah, blah. Another answer is they're going to come for some big spending cuts, right? But Trump promised very, very, very prominently not to cut Social Security, not to cut Medicare, not to cut Medicaid. But we know that the compromise that Republicans seem to have reached amongst themselves, right, is not that they are going to fulfill Trump's promises on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, but that they are going to demand hazy verbal outs, right? So when they cut the uh, disability insurance program part of Social Security in their budget proposal, they said, well, that's not really Social Security. That's really welfare, right? And when they cut Medicaid in Obamacare repeal, they said, well, that's not cutting Medicaid, right? That's that's part of Obamacare repeal. And I think that's where we're going with this, right? That if this giant tax cut bill passes, we're going to see a major legislative and administrative drive to enact these swinging cuts to Medicaid, but they're going to call it welfare reform, right? It's going to be work requirements. It's going to be a million things like that, right? It's going to be cast exactly as Verma cast it. Not that like, well, we're just saying we don't want people to have health care, but we're saying this is welfare. We need to do welfare reform like we did in the 90s. We need to turn Medicaid into a program that gets people working, not into a program that gets sick people medicine. And it's going to be like a catastrophe for the well-being, I will say, of like millions of low-income Americans who are going to pay the tab for this corporate tax cut. And I think it's helpful to drive home what a key figure Seema Verma has been in this thinking. So I have known about her for at least the last four or five years. Before she joined the Trump administration, she was um, a healthcare consultant, also in Indiana. So part of this Indiana Pence circle. And she worked with Indiana and then with other states to develop waiver proposals to test out these conservative ideas. So she worked with Kentucky, for example, to submit a request to add a requirement that anyone on Medicaid either be working, be in school, or looking for work. Um, She worked with a number of other states on very similar. She kind of became like the go-to consultant if you wanted to create one of these conservative Medicaid waivers, you would work with SEMA. And SEMA got her start in Indiana, then expands out to other states. Trump comes into office, and now she is the person in charge of approving those waivers. So it is really, she, I don't think you can understate what a key figure she has been in articulating the conservative vision for Medicaid and articulating the idea that there should be a work requirement, and here's how you would structure it, and here's why it should exist. And that people who are on Medicaid should pay premiums. Even if they're low, they should be paying a few dollars a month to have Medicaid to make it look a little more similar to private insurance. Um, 
And I think also one other thing that is important to know here is that it's not clear what the work requirement accomplishes. There's actually pretty decent data showing most able-bodied Medicaid enrollees do work. Um, there is There was a study that came out recently in the journal Health Affairs that found that 87% of able-bodied Medicaid beneficiaries were working, looking for work, or in school. Um, of the remaining 13%, three-quarters report they are not working in order to care for family members, and the rest report other reasons like being laid off. So it feels a lot more ideological. You know, we have heard even the medic Kentucky say specifically, like, this is a move that will shrink our Medicaid roles. It's not clear you actually end up with a lot more people working because most Medicaid enrollees are already working, but you end up with some people losing Medicaid because they aren't filing the paperwork or they're not paying their $3 monthly premium. It, I think like Matt said, it is not it does not say you're no longer eligible for Medicaid, but it creates a lot of bureaucracy around Medicaid where it makes it a lot easier for people who currently enroll in the program to fall through the cracks. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's sort of a longstanding, I don't know exactly how you want to put it, but there's a disagreement. Just you see how in how means-tested programs are uh, implemented in different states, right? So in a handful of states like New York and California, which have been just very solidly under sort of Democratic administration with occasional moderate Republicans winning. The philosophy is that social safety net programs exist because they are helpful and they make people's lives better. So the state should try to make sure that they are used, right? And then you have other states, particularly in the Deep South, that are perennially under conservative governance, and they take the exact opposite view, right? That social safety net programs are something that people have the legal right to claim, take advantage of, you know, if they want to, but that the state should make it hard. Well, right? and I think another key part of this divide is that they're temporary. They are not a thing you have for more than a year or two, right. that they're a transition back to somewhere else. Right. But that basically that, like, it is a moral evil for people to be receiving public assistance of any kind, and you should make it as rare as possible, right, within the sort of constraints of, of federal government. Um, we've talked a, a bunch of times about different sort of research papers on on Medicaid. And I mean, I, and, and I think we, we will talk more about it because I think it's important to understand this, right, that like in the conservative mindset on this, Medicaid is just this like nutty thing liberals did one day. And it costs the government money. And so, like, the big question is, like, how can we, like, slip the bounds of this odious obligation to pay for people's medical care? Uh, but there's just, like, reams of research that shows that giving people Medicare coverage makes their lives better, makes their kids' lives better. I found a new thing about making their grandchildren's lives better. And so it's, like, to me, it's, like, do you want to create a, like, a I don't know, like a thriving society in which human beings prosper. And in that case, you probably don't want to like stint on giving basic health care to individuals who are in need. I mean, you may, you have capacity limits, right? I mean, you can't give everything to everyone, but like you can give Medicaid to everyone. It's, it's pretty cheap. But conservatives think Medicaid is not like helpful. So it's like a really good idea to find ways to deny it to people, especially if if you could, I mean, in the conservative worldview, if, if you take what conservatives say about Medicaid seriously, right, if denying a million people Medicaid benefits got one person to work harder and take a job and get ahead in life, that would pass the cost-benefit analysis, right? Because the million people, they've received nothing of value, according to— Like, I, I think that's just wrong. But, like, they say all the time that they have these studies that show it has no value. So if you could accomplish, like, literally anything, if you could plant an extra tree in a park somewhere and 20 million people lose health insurance, like, that's a big win. And, like, I think that's crazy. But they write this down all the time in, like, published articles that editors look at. Right, and I think— um Seema Verma, she spoke to this in the speech she gave last week. Um, here's what she said. She said, we will not just accept the hollow victory of numbers covered, um, numbers covered in Medicaid, but we'll dig deeper and demand more of ourselves and more of you. That is a very different view than the Obama administration had. There was nothing hollow about the idea of getting people enrolled 
on Medicaid, they they wanted people enrolled on Medicaid. They wanted states to expand. They would publish numbers every month showing Medicaid enrollment was going up and up and up. But it really is articulated right there that it is, you know, describing it as a hollow victory to have more people on this program. It's a very different worldview of what Medicaid is. But I think we've had enough. We we had enough boring health policy. It's time to get to to the our hollow work. victory. The hollow the vic- weekend. <laughs> the not hollow victory of the weekend. The the why we are all working for the weekend white paper. We'll be right back. The secret to a well-groomed guy is the art of shaving. Founded in New York in 1996, The Art of Shaving has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. They've got a a total routine covered, whether it's shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Uh, Their award-winning products are formulated with high-quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Uh, The four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. Prep your skin with a signature pre-shave oil. Create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush. Shave, then you can replenish moisture with their after shave balm. Finish off the perfect shave with one of their five fragrances. Sandalwood and Cypress, Oud Suede, which I love to say, Vetiver Citron, Green Lavender, and Coriander and Cardamom, which is my favorite. Uh, each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that lets you save on your favorite products while never needing to worry. Uh, so our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping if you use promo code WEEDS. So to get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com, use a special promo code WEEDS, They give you 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer. Or if you want a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations. Uh, There's one right near your office. It's really cool. Uh, they got great places all over the country. Check it out. Okay, uh, this paper is is one of my my favorite uh, research papers of all time. In part because I heard I, it's your all time favorite yeah, research I, paper. I, I, I read a lot of economics papers all the time, uh, but this is a good one because it's a it's a sociology paper, but on an economic subject, and it's like a nice, fun. It's not funny. It's it, it's a finding that's both a little obvious, but also kind of deep, and also kind of like a fuck you to the way economists think about this issue. It's called "Time Is a Network Good: Evidence from Unemployment and the Standard Work Week." Uh, and so, what they do in this paper is they look at when people are happy and when people are stressed out. And it turns out that people are quite happy on Saturday and Sunday. They are quite stressed out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on Friday, they're in a kind of a transitional phase as they as they look forward to the weekend and, and leave their troubles behind. Um, so, so far, so good. I mean, it's pretty intuitive. Uh, pe- people like time off. Pe- people don't like to work during the week. But then they look at unemployed people, and they show that unemployed people are sort of systematically less happy than employed people, but that they have the exact same seven-day cycle as the employed people, that they really enjoy the weekends, a really sad Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or in a transitional phase on Friday. They are also looking forward to the weekend. Uh, And then they go and they look at time use data, and they show that, you know, employed people do a lot more socializing on the weekends than they do during the work week. Obviously, you're at work all the time. But unemployed people also do more socializing on the weekends because, of course, their friends and family are not at work, right? And so they're showing that just, like, the time off from work, per se, is, like, not that helpful to people. It's time off in a way that you know other people are also going to have time off that creates, like, the real sort of bounty of of leisure. And that's, you know, I I mean, it's an interesting sort of fact about the world. uh, But it also, I think, has real sort of implications for how we should think about certain kinds of, of labor market issues. What are the implications? Well, I mean, just like one obvious one is that giving people flexible uh, time off, right? Like if you're thinking about your company, right? And you could say, okay, well, we might give all our workers one more vacation day to use at their discretion. Or alternatively, we might close the company down on a fringe holiday like Veterans Day that, you know, federal employees get, but Vox Media employees don't get. You probably think to yourself, right, in the sort of model, well, a flexible day off is going to be way better for people than a rigid fixed day off. But actually, at least in a city like D.C., where a lot of people already have Veterans Day off, making everyone take Veterans Day off might be 
more useful because you have an extended friends and family network that's already there. And then you'd have a cascading effect, right? Like if more companies started specifically taking that day off, then that increases the benefits to other people to having that holiday off. And in fact, like the government might do well to improve people's lives by, you know, pushing the needle forward on more national holidays. I mean, we don't have... The U.S., in some countries, right, there's, like, really strict rules around national holidays. In the U.S., like, some businesses are open even on Christmas Day, uh, although most aren't. But the government has both formal and informal tools to, like, encourage people to coordinate on, on days off. And I think this suggests that the government probably should do that. It also suggests that as we transition into more and more of a personal services economy, we have a problem, right? Because whether you work in a hair salon or or you work in a restaurant, you work, uh, you know, in a movie theater, any kind of entertainment venue, um, you know, you're doing people's nails, you, you work in a retail shop, there's a lot of pressure to have people doing those jobs on the weekend when people can go to the stores, which makes sense, but there's something potentially socially dysfunctional about moving to, like, a complete seven-day work week, even if every individual person only works five days a week. Mm -hmm. Right. And I wonder how that—I mean, it'd be interesting to see, like, how that works out for something a lot more gig-based. Because I think, like, if you look at something like Uber, for example, you can probably make a lot more money, like, driving people around at the exact times, like, you would like to be hanging out with your friends, because that's when a lot of people are getting together. Right. And— I don't know. It's like an interesting trade-off you you put those drivers in where on the one hand, they could do financially best by giving up that time and giving up the time where they would be seeing their friends. On the other hand, like they're giving up a a key good and that has ripple effects because like if you have a handful of like Uber drivers in your friend network, then all of a sudden you come to like Friday night and you guys can't hang out. And maybe it like, maybe it becomes stratified enough that that, you know, you have different schedules that start to develop where, you know, you're kind of coordinating a little bit with your friends. You also have more gig-like jobs to have different times where where you're all free. But as you get rid of the standardization of the work week with with more freelance gigs, with more things like that, it, it it's interesting to see how that translate into the kind of social well-being being of people, like how you manage that transition when the work week is a lot less structured and it's kind of like up to you to coordinate with your friends, like a time that everyone, or even like with your spouse and like with your kids to like coordinate a time when like the entire family is free and together and you get to like enjoy the fact that you have a great family there. Yeah. I mean, so I I think what I would try to do as a social planner, right, is try to push more office jobs to a four-day work week, like a four-day on, three days off, longer work day kind of thing. Like, I, I know there's been an initiative on that on that regard in uh, Utah, and, and the federal government has some, you know, uh, offerings uh, along those lines, which I think makes a, a certain amount of sense for, for office workers. And that that then creates, like, a third day that becomes officially known as, like, the designated third weekend day. And then try to use legal and regulatory tools to ensure that people who are in like service sector industries, that they are not working all three of the three-day weekend days, you know, to like try to make, because I, I think there's a real risk here that as, you know, fewer and fewer people work sort of producing goods for abstract distribution and more and more people are just providing services to other people. And also as we have fewer and fewer people going to church and, you know, less religiosity, that we're going to lose like the concept of, the weekend, right? That in the sort of like ur-rationalist, neoliberal, whatever, it's like we all just work whenever we want, which sounds good, right? Like I would rather work whenever I want than arbitrarily not work on Saturday and Sunday. But it turns out it's like it's actually better to have a level of arbitrariness built into it because it lets us all coordinate. And if we're all just like making it up as we go along, we're not going to like find each other, right? Like, all these unemployed people are not, like, having a blast at the well, park on Unemployed Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> well, that actually speaks to, like, our last segment on Medicaid and work requirements. I think one of the things we haven't talked about as much is that even among people who have a lot of, who are unemployed and they have a lot of free time during the week, this paper doesn't find, 
I think they said they like have like a quarter more happiness. Yeah. Like it seems like a quarter of their happiness is like due to just having more free time to do what they want, but they have the exact same pattern. And it kind of like makes me talking about it after these Medicaid work requirements, like being unemployed isn't that fun. It's, it's, no. it's boring a lot of the time. You're looking for jobs. People aren't around. Like you're waiting for someone to get home. I really like like taking a day off here or there when like no one is around. Like, you know, my husband isn't around. Like I can just do literally whatever I want. And like the stores are really empty and it's great. And having that like one counter cyclical day every now and then I think is a nice good, but having that be the constant, it, it pushes against back against this narrative of like kind of like unemployed people like hanging out in a hammock, like having a blast, just having all this free time where they can do all, what they want. This paper suggests, and this is like not a surprising finding, but it's not that fun to be right. unemployed, especially for like a longer period of time. Well, and I, I would also say, I mean, an important thing is that what we see in all kinds of time use surveys is that unemployed people watch a lot of television, right? That's like the sort of, it's not the only thing people do with the time that's freed up by, by not working, but it's the, the predominant thing. And we also see that unemployed people are not made very happy by all this extra time to watch television. And I think that's important. I mean, not just for how we think about joblessness, but actually for how we think about how the world has changed. Because if I was to say something positive about the evolution of the American economy and society over the past 20, 30 years, the fact that we have way better television watching options is like high on the list, right? If like something that has gotten a lot better is like you can watch, not only are the shows better, but like you can watch them on demand, you can watch old episodes. Like it's an amazing cornucopia compared to what we had when we were kids, when you're like sitting there like an idiot, like I gotta get home if I wanna watch this episode, <laughs> right? Um, but so it's striking that having free time to sit alone in your house and watch television actually doesn't make people happy. Right. I mean, I just say no one has ever enjoyed watching a TV show, but just like systematically, right? It's not actually a like life enhancing experience. And yet that's one area in which we have done a lot to to improve life. And if you look at that, we also know that like long commutes make people really unhappy, but commuting times have gotten a lot worse than they were 20 years ago. Right. And so you know, we look at, like, aggregate economic statistics, and it's like, well, you know, Netflix is as good as commute time. You know, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> it's all money. It's all fungible. Uh, but what we see when we look at happiness and we look at how people are using their time, that, like, that's not that's not right. That, like, moving to a world in which you have more choice of television shows, uh, but you're stuck longer on the highway is, like, it doesn't balance out. like. But even, like, more choice of, like, part of the joy of, like, watching television shows is, like, talking to someone about it right. afterwards. So even if you have greater choice, it's kind of like, you know, you tell your friends you watched all of Stranger Things and they haven't been able to watch it because they're working. Like, there's right. less there's less joy in it when you're the only one experiencing the good TV. But it even makes me wonder if the technically superior on-demand TV watching, like, isn't worse, right? That, like... Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's like a lot less structured, right? It's not like the next day, like, everyone talks about Seinfeld or whatever we right. did in the 90s. I mean, so, like, right. It's like you might be bummed out if you missed ER and Seinfeld <laughs> and, and must-see TV. On the other hand, if you went, like, if you watched the high-rated NBC Thursday night shows, right. then on Friday, like... You talk about friends. You talk about, talk about it with everybody. Ross. Whereas now it's like you never... Like, you never know. Like, I'm kind of watching Stranger Things now. And I'm done with it? The first season. Oh, but oh like, you're way behind. Right, but I'm, like, totally out of the conversation, and I have no opinions about anything. And it's, but I mean, you know, we're joking a little, but, like, it's common sense, but also supported by research that, like, what makes people happy in life is relationships with other <laughs> human beings. And, like, when things in the economy and society facilitate that, that's, like, really good. But when... You have changes that destabilize, like, the coordinating mechanisms that are the glue of society. It's, like, it's not obvious that it's good. All right. I think that's uh, Weeds. And that is why we release the Weeds on a regular <laughs> schedule, so that you can listen to it when it comes out. You can listen to the other Vox Media podcasts when they come out yes, on their own schedule. Yes, we release um, The Impact every Monday, so you can talk about your friends afterwards. This week, we have our second episode on the opioid epidemic. We're looking at how doctors treat chronic pain in an era where they know 
that opioids are quite dangerous. And one of the things we discuss, and I talk about, you know, my own challenges with chronic pain is that there often aren't a lot of good options and what that means for doctors who are just notoriously always wanting to solve a problem when they can't solve a problem like chronic pain. Um, There's a cameo from my mom in this episode. I think you would really enjoy it. So if you want to forge meaningful connections with other human beings, download and listen to Vox Media podcasts when they come out and then go to the Weeds Facebook group to have discussions with your fellow Weeds fans and recommend the show to other people so that we can coordinate as a society on listening together, talking together, building, uh, you know, meaningful relationships with each other. Speaking of which, thank you to our producer, Peter Leonard. We will be back on Friday.